Welcome, listeners, to the Everlasting Stories podcast, brought to you by Sick Semper Serpent Books in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm your host, Michael Strand. Tonight, we are bringing to you Detective Luke Miller and the End of Existence, Part 1, by D. Zane Davis. Now, before I jog your memories as to where we are at in the Luke Miller saga, I have to briefly apologize. There's been a bit of a break in the podcast schedule. This is due to some health issues I've had recently. Don't worry, I'm not dying. It's just made it difficult to sit down and work on the podcast as much as I would have liked this fall. However, we have an absolute bevy of fresh new content coming for you in 2020. Tonight we have uh, part one of the end of existence, and then next time we will have part two, which will end Luke Miller for now, while Dan writes more of it. And then we will be beginning a brand new series called Twisted Tales by Christina DZA Marie. left our hero, Detective Luke Miller, he and Dr. Dahlia Harriet, aka the incarnation of the goddess Freya, were working to raise an army of Vettier soldiers, or armed Sasquatches, in order to confront an apocalyptic dragon before it tears human civilization to tiny little pieces. In order to do so, they need some feathers from a cloak that was stolen by evil big feet named Skookums, as well as powder from a dragon tooth in order to create a magic lance that will destroy the fire drake. Whilst Luke and Freya work to collect these items, Bromir, or the dwarf armorer of the gods, is outfitting the Sasquatch army for their final confrontation. That's right, folks, we have it all. We have dragons, magic, big feet armed to the teeth, and a confrontation with apocalyptic destiny you are not gonna wanna miss. As always, this program is powered by Patreon.com. Head over to Patreon.com slash SickSemperSerpent to sign up. It's super easy. For $1 a month, you can get access to the entire archive of written stories. And for $3 a month, you can support this podcast by signing up and getting early access to new episodes. If you like to support the arts and you like to read because you're real smart in your brain space, you can sign up at higher levels to get perks such as signed books when we release them. For example, we just released a brand new book by Everlasting Stories author Nathaniel Hicklin titled The Adventures of Israel St. James. Now, you can get this book from any corporate retailer online, or you can go to our website and get a reduced price, or you can get a copy in the mail just by signing up at the $9 a month level. The Adventures of Israel St. James is available in paperback and ebook and soon to be audiobook as soon as I finish recording it. So, friends, please 
go check it out. It helps us, and it's also an amazing book, so win-win. If you want to stay up on all the latest from Six Semper Serpent, follow us at Six Semper Serpent on Instagram. I'm there too at Strand Art and Lit. And if you search for them, you can also follow Nathaniel Hicklin and Christina DZA Marie. All right, folks, I think we've tarried long enough. Let us begin the story. This is Detective Luke Miller at the End of Existence, Part 1 by D. Zane Davis. And it starts right now on the Everlasting Stories Podcast. Welcome to this special news report for what we're calling Dragon Apocalypse 2019. After awakening just days ago at the friendly ferrite mine in Minnesota's Mesabi Range, the Fire Drake Dragotch, as he's reportedly called, along with his army of evil Sasquatches, or Skookums, have blazed eastward following the shoreline of the Great Lakes, bound for the urban centers of the Atlantic coast. En route, his evil entourage of vulture-riding Bigfeet have granted a terrible glimpse into what awaits the rest of the world as they have raised hundreds of smaller settlements across Canada and the northern United States and have turned them into little more than charred craters filled with bleached bones and twisted metal. In many respects, the world has descended into chaos. Just earlier today, in response to this dragon destruction, the U.S. president vowed on Hound News to, quote, nuke this monster into obliviousness, end quote. However, his executive order was stalled when the president of France threatened to fire his nation's nuclear arsenal at Washington, D.C. to prevent a human rights violation against Canada whose population would most suffer if a nuclear weapon were launched at the Dragon Menace. Subsequently, the heads of Russia and China have vowed to annihilate France should they retaliate against the U.S., which then provoked a response from India's president to fire upon China and Russia for such a transgression. This nuclear deterrent domino effect has left the world's leaders at an atomic impasse. With conventional weapons as useless as sticks of butter in a summer gunfight, thousands of U.S. and Canadian military personnel sent to intercept the dragon have abandoned their equipment in the field or commandeered it to rescue local loved ones. 
In addition, the FAA has grounded all flights in order to avoid them being intercepted by monsters or interfering with what military operations can continue through the geopolitical deadlock. As a result, motor and railway access across the globe has ground to a halt, clogged by tens of millions fleeing major cities. Meanwhile, billions have watched on social media as terabits of amateur drone footage has overwhelmed desperate government attempts to censor the images of the dragon and its destruction. However, live streams of the dragon burning cities and crushing demoralized armies have spread throughout the net. The ongoing apocalypse has dominated every feed on the planet and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. In hundreds of metropolises throughout the world, riots and looting rule. Local law enforcement are despondent to stop the chaos or have even in some cases abandoned their posts. Meanwhile, in open fields and on mountaintops the world over, esoteric cults have gathered to meet the winged redeemer taking their own lives en masse. Citizens, please, if you are listening to this report, remain calm, remain in your homes, and do not approach the dragon. I repeat, do not approach the dragon. All right, Brona, we're right on top of him, Luke shouted to his Bigfoot companion from the back of his great owl, Thunderer, his suit of plate armor shimmering in the skewers of sunlight poking through the clouds, enveloping the detective and his Bigfoot ally as they flew through the foggy air. Below them, the trio of Skookum vulture riders who'd stolen Freya's raven feather cloak three days earlier flew after their master, the fell dragon. Bormir, dwarf armor of the gods, needed at least seven enchanted feathers from the pilfered cloak to construct a magical javelin, which is the only weapon capable of piercing the serpent's adamantine armor. In order to find the cloak's captor, the Bigfoot chieftain Brona had summoned the leader of the Bald Eagles, who had sent his avian vassals to scour the skies and locate the cloak. Meanwhile, Bormir's supernatural prowess allowed him to complete weapons and armor for Luke, Freya, and their newfound ally, Dr. Gerard Delvaux, in just a few hours. Since the quartet had limited time to acquire Freya's lost feather cloak and one of Dragoch's teeth in order to fashion the dragon-killing lance, they split up, Luke and Brona taking to the skies to get the mantle, while Freya and Dr. Delvaux returned to the remains of the friendly ferrite mining company in order to search for a dragon tooth among the wreckage. From her seat on the back of Whirlwind, the Great Owl, Rona pulled out a net Bormir had crafted for her, made of shimmering silver cord. Okay, Brona commanded. Remember the plan. We drop out of the clouds, and you unseat and impale the demon with your gersame, and then I'll swoop in and capture the cloak with this net. Right, Luke nodded. On three. One, two, 
Three. <laughs> Suddenly, his countdown was interrupted by a skookum shrieking into view before them, without a vulture. Despite Brona's belief that the twisted spirits couldn't employ the magic of Freya's godly cloak, a skookum had indeed mastered the power of flight. Dear gods, Brona cried from the back of her great owl, Dragoch's destruction must be increasing his powers. The Skookum's life force is inexorably intertwined upon the dragons, so his growing potency must be empowering their enchantments. Luke really only got the gist of Brona's analysis, however, as the vulture rider shot up through the clouds and knocked the pole from his hand. And then another rider appeared and yanked the net from Brona and threw it over her and Whirlwind, causing them both to tumble towards the earth. While the cloaked Skookum cackled, his comrades charged at Luke from opposite ends of the sky. The detective drew his sword, his head darting from one shoulder to the other, unsure of how to parry the assault. For the love of Beowulf's bloody broadsword, he shouted, gripping tight the sword hilt, I've had enough of you bastards for one day. How in heaven's name do we lug this back to Bormir? Dr. Delvo wondered aloud, examining an incisor the size of a household refrigerator, half buried amid the rubble of friendly ferrite's induration facilities. I don't doubt we'll have to use magic to dig it out, but the size and weight will leave us sitting ducks for skookum skirmishers. Hmm. Ah, Delvo, you don't have much imagination for a mystic, do you? Freya asked sarcastically, scratching the patch above her owl lightning's beak. The goddess turned and spoke to the owl who'd carried Delvo. Talon, keep an eye out. The noble owl dipped its head and hooted softly, his eyes dilating to vast ebony pools. Then Freya approached the tooth and knelt down, the silver, elm-leaf-shaped scales of her halbrick just touching the scorched dirt. She extended her arms at forty-five-degree angles from her torso, her leather-gloved palms hovering parallel to the earth. She closed her eyes and incanted a few phrases in an ancient, unearthly tongue. A few seconds passed silently, and then the earth began to tremble faintly. Delvaux's armor clanked as he jumped back in fear, impressively high for a man his age. It's... it's Dragotch. Don't be silly, Freya scoffed, climbing to her feet. The ground vibrated again, more intensely. In a panic, Delvaux fumbled with his sword, while Freya calmly took a step back. A dome of dirt rose rapidly where she stood. Instead of a dragon, the pair beheld a gigantic gopher emerge from the mound. The SUV-sized rodent's beady black eyes studied the scene. His front teeth chattered like jackhammers, while his basketball-sized nose sniffed furiously at the stale air. Spotting Freya, the creature bowed and began in a low lisp, 
Why, Freya Vanadis, what an honor. How can the governor of the Gophers answer your call for assistance in this dark hour? Ah, oh, yes. Thank you, Mamok, the goddess replied. There's little time for formalities. Do you see the dragon's tooth behind me? The gopher nodded. Well, I need it brought to Bormir's cottage as quickly and discreetly as possible. In order to evade Skookum Scout, no doubt, the rodent replied with what Delvo imagined was a grin. Indeed, Freya affirmed. Can you do it? Not only can I do it, Mamok announced proudly, but it shall be my pleasure to do so. <laughs> With these words uttered, he dove back underground in an explosion of soil. A moment later, Dragoch's tooth began to slowly slip beneath the dirt, falling into a tunnel made by the burrowing beast. See? Freya pronounced proudly as the tooth completely disappeared from view. Interesting, Delvo replied, his mind pondering a new problem. But what I find more interesting is that it called you Freya Vanadis, Queen of the Gods. Dwelling upon it, I also recall Brona using that title, though it was of no import to me at the time, having only just escaped the dragon's clutches, but, <laughs> obviously, I've always known you as Dahlia Aldrich Harriet, Ph.D., so when Brona first called you Freya, I took it to be some sort of, well, perhaps a nickname— in our rivalry as archaeologists, I've tried to gain an edge by researching your private life. And you found, Freya interrupted, almost nothing, Delvo replied, causing a satisfied smile to creep across his companion's lips. It retreated as he continued, except some undated INS paperwork, including an 1887 Viennese birth certificate I assumed was misfiled, but now I'm not so sure. You command fantastic creatures with impunity and wield arcane, powerful magic. Dr. Harriet, are you really the incarnation of Freya, goddess of war? She finished. Yes, and frankly, I thought you'd have put the pieces together long ago. Well, the antique dealer began, clearly consumed in thought. I... His explanation was stalled by a shriek from Talon. A stone's throw to the west, a swarm of skookans skulked from behind a pile of mangled concrete and steel. Around fifty ran straight towards the party, hissing, cursing, and brandishing their blades. Meanwhile, twenty or so more archers paused to knock ebony arrows into spindly black bows and unleash a wave of deadly projectiles to save her humans from a hailstrom of sawtoothed, armor-piercing arrows, Talon spread her wings and leapt into the sky, hoping to fan the fatal fusillade away. However, the Skooka magic had grown too powerful, and their sky-darkening swath of missiles slammed straight into the unfortunate owl, piercing her like a pincushion.
Talon screamed in mortal pain and tumbled back to earth in a pile of ruffled feathers and shattered arrows. The remaining projectiles peppered the ground in a bird-shaped ring around Freya and Delvaux, leaving them unharmed. With the owl dead, the goddess realized that they had but one option for escape before the archers unleashed another fusillade. Fly, lightning! Save yourself! she ordered, grabbing Delvaux by his left vambrace. What? the doctor shouted in confusion. How will we... His outrage was cut short as Freya shoved him into the hole formerly occupied by Dragoch's tooth before diving in after and sealing the fissure with a spell just as more skookum arrows carpeted the clearing. In an attempt to outrun a pair of Skookum Lancers, Luke spurred Thunderer as fast as she could fly, to no avail. Looking back, he realized the creatures were actually gaining on him. Desperate, he pointed Thunderer straight towards the stratosphere, hoping the vultures could not tolerate the frigid temperature. However, as the air grew thin, he turned back to find the cruel cavalry still glued to his trail. He tried to think of a plan, but his thoughts were clouded by the frigid air and a high-pitched whine coming from the clouds above him. He recognized that noise. He turned Thunderer sharply in the direction of the sound as the Skookums closed in. The detective's owl burst through the clouds, a feather's width in front of a U.S. Air Force reconnaissance aircraft. The Skookum Spearman emerged a millisecond later, directly in front of the aircraft's port engines. With desperate screams and squawks, the demons were immediately sucked into the engine intakes. Concussive booms shook the sky as both engines exploded into swirling balls of orange and black flame. The jet lurched to port and began losing altitude. Luke would have stayed to help the ejecting crew had the escaped Skookums not appeared fewer than 50 yards away. Seeing Luke, the creature cried, Asanase, or impale and charged at him at seemingly supersonic speed. A five-foot iron glaive gripped firmly in its right arm. Based on his experience of flying the cloak himself, Luke knew that the Skookum would be at least a furlough a minute faster than Thunderer. And, while Bormir had forged Luke a beautiful arming sword, its 30-inch blade would be useless against a polearm in an aerial joust. Therefore, if he tried to flee, the swifter Skookum would simply skewer him from behind. The detective racked his brain for the only second he had to spare. Discerning something akin to a plan, he shouted directions to his owl, drew his sword, and spurred them toward their foe. Three seconds later, the pair came within spitting distance of the enemy. Before they clashed, however, Thunderer shot upwards in the opening maneuver of a loop-the-loop. As she did so, 
Luke slipped his boots from the stirrups so that when the owl reached the top of the loop, at which point they were both upside down, he fell free. Gripping his sword with both hands, Luke did a forward half-somersault so his feet again faced the ground. Directly beneath him, the skookum had just begun its ascent, its glaive pointed away from Luke. Before the skookum could react, Luke fell upon it, his sword cleaving its skull from crown to chin. With little more than a pained hiss, the creature died, dissipating into dust and releasing the cloak. While Luke continued to fall, the cloak was held aloft by an updraft. He reached to grab the ebony-feathered garment, but his grip fell short. Expletives tumbled from the detective's mouth as he fell towards the ground. As he left the clouds, Thunderer's talons snagged him by the pauldrons, just as he'd planned. Quick, he shouted, the cloak! Before he could finish, however, Brona and Whirlwind soared into view. Seeing the prize drifting away, the barn owl snagged the cloak in her claws with a triumphant shriek. Praise Odin, Luke called out. I thought that net had done you in. The Vetia have been untangling themselves from traps and nets as long as men have made them, the Bigfoot replied with a smile, holding up a stout dagger with an antler horn grip, though having one of these doesn't hurt. (laughs) Ah, well, thank goodness, Luke replied. Now, let's get the cloak back to Bromir before we're ambushed again, Brona nodded. Thunderer pulled Luke into her chest, practically burying him in her downy plumage. The detective safely and aerodynamically cradled, the owls turned and flicked their wings, soaring towards the dwarf's forge. <laughs> Aye, this is quite the tooth. Bromir chuckled, examining the immense fang Memuk had deposited in front of his forge. Nearby, the giant gopher gulped water from a quench tank. "'Tis quite a job for old Bromir. When you told me your tale, my lord Miller, I was expecting a hundred or two hundred pieces of armor at best. But last I counted, on top of what you're wearing, I've made five thousand sets of etier armor, helms, pikes, swords, and shields, and almost as many sets of owl armor and saddles along with... Oh. I'm sorry. Believe me, Bromir, had we known... Luke attempted to apologize. Wait, did you say five thousand? Indeed, the armor replied proudly. Luke, you realize that's a venerable legion, Freya chimed in with joy. Oh, praise Odin, Brona announced. But how did you arm so many without detection? The same way Milady Freya got this tooth and herself to my hut. And me, Delvo interrupted sullenly, having disliked the dark, claustrophobic, muddy journey. Indeed, indeed, Master Delvo, Bromir answered. Memuk, the gopher king, bored us a tunnel between the hatch in me floor over yonder and the Vattersdale. Our plan... Just might work, won't it? Luke declared. Not without your spear, my lord, Bromir chided. Now, 
Why don't you hang that feather cloak over by me bellows and grab me a flag and a ale from that keg over yonder there? So then we can get to work. Luke nodded, and the dwarf continued. My lady Brona, such an army as what's gathering will no doubt want to meet with her captain. Please, since you've left your armor on, feel free to take your leave of us at any time. Young Master Miller and Lady Freya will help me at my forge, and I'm sure my Lord Delvo is more than capable of grinding a measure of that tooth powder for the protection spell. Yes, indeed. I might as well remain here for the duration, Delvo answered self-consciously. I've dodged that dratted dragon and his servants too many times already. Besides, at my age, I'm no asset in battle. And there's no shame in that. Freya replied, relieved, as the doctor had not been much help in retrieving the tooth. Well, thank you, the old man said. Bromir, your counsel is wise, Brona interjected. I shall return to the Vettersdale at once. Luke, Freya, shall I meet you there later? Oh, yes, indeed, Freya replied. Hey, while you're there, tell Shelby she's a good girl for waiting in the hall so long, Luke added, thinking of his old mutt. Well, young Master Miller, didn't you know? Bromir interjected. Your dog's been such a good messenger and scout, she's been named Mishike's personal guardian, and I even made her a suit of armor to match yours. Well, I'll be damned, Luke resolved. Okay, then. Tell her she's a very good girl. Brona nodded and made for the trapdoor. Meanwhile, Bromir wrapped his tree trunk arms around the incisor, squatted down, and picked up the nearly thousand pound tooth. He heaved it closer to the hearth and dropped it on its side with a concussion that threatened to shake the cottage down. <sighs> All right, Freya, the dwarf huffed. Grab me them wedges over there. We've got to reeve it. Um. Reeve? Luke questioned, bearing a gallon-sized flagon of frothy dark beer. Aye, Bromir replied, picking up a wooden mallet that would make Thor envious. To reeve means to split a tree down to planks or other pieces. If you split it, the grain follows the piece being forged, making it much stronger than if it were just sawed. The dwarf grabbed the mug from Luke, downed it in one gulp, and mopped his brow with the back of a gnarled paw. Now, while the three of us work unreaven, Delvo, you take that file and that bucket over there and start grinding granules off of that tooth. Once you've filled that bucket, I'll show you how to sew little pouches and pack them in. Now, Freya, it's your turn to grab me beer, and you, Master Miller... Hold that wedge for me. Days later, in the forest clearing outside the Vattersdale, 5,000 Vettier legionnaires of every conceivable size, shape, and color sat saddled upon their owls in 20 ranks. Their steel lances and breastplates glittered even amid the gloomy gray of the dragon's foul magic which had stained the skies. The leather that composed their armor plates reinforced with swirling appliques of polished brass and steel, glowed a rich honey-brown. Alongside a short sword or scimitar, 
Each soldier carried a 15-foot ash wood lance, tipped with sparkling steel, and a broad rectangular wooden shield. While the majority of the Bigfoot soldiers would take to the skies, a cadre of 300 would fight as infantry to prevent skookums from stirring up trouble on the ground. In front of the foremost rank, Brona took a seat upon Whirlwind's back and removed from her satchel a black leather drawstring pouch containing fine white powder. She held it over her head, signaling the Vatir behind her to do the same. As they did, one of twenty elderly Vatir carrying burning torches approached the leftmost soldier in each rank. Another stepped up to Brona, who poured the powder into her right palm, took the torch in her left, and gently touched flame to tinder. As the dragon fang dust ignited, crackling with pink and blue sparks, the Vatia recited Milburja's protection spell. Dragon shield, your task is nigh. Our enemy in the field now lies. A mist as intensely blue as Freya's irises condensed around Brona and her owl, slowly coalescing into a solid, glassy sphere. The Bigfoot marveled at the magic, gently touching the membrane. It rippled like water, but did not burst. The captain's shield complete, the ranks behind repeated the ritual, passing the torch down the line until all 5,000 were encased in a translucent bubble. Brona turned on the back of her great owl to Freya and Luke, who stood nearby, studying Fremus France. Its stout, ten-inch-long triangular section tip had been imbued with a deep blue-black color from the heat of the furnace. Thousands of Damascus-like layers of tooth steel gave the metal a wicked luminescence. A seven-foot hollow shaft of polished steel had been affixed to the blade with a thick forge weld, and where the tip met the shaft, a winding of glimmering steel held seven ebony raven's flight feathers in a ring. Though seemingly heavy, the whole weapon might as well have been made of bird's bones. It was so light. This, coupled with its one-inch diameter and slender tapering tip, promised to punch through the dragon's scales and pierce the fire drake's heart. We'll slaughter the skookums and distract Dragoch, Rona began, also marveling at the weapon. The rest is up to you, Luke Miller. May your courage and your aim be true. Giving Freya an approving smile, the Bigfoot chieftain turned to inspect her troops. Finding them fully shielded and ready for battle, she bared her fangs, drew her scimitar, and bellowed, Dragotch, Odin owes you. Five thousand Vatir echoed the cry, followed by deafening war whoops and howls. War cries resonated through the trees as the Vatir legion took flight. The air moved by the many thousand owl mounts shook the trees like a Category 5 tornado, while the marching of 300 heavily armored Bigfoot shook the ground like a pile driver. All right, it's our turn, Freya announced after the dust had settled. Since their bassinet helms prevented any more intimate method, Freya kissed her index finger and touched it to the detective's lips. The helmet hid Luke's blush as they both saddled up. Focus on the fire drake, 
Freya assured her companion as they took the reins. Brona's got your front, and I have your back. I know, Luke replied, partially masking anxiety with bravado. Now, let's just kill this damn dragon already, Freya chuckled, more successfully concealing her apprehension at the task lying ahead than Luke. Without another delay, they cast their shield spells and took to the skies. After flying for several hours, the pair finally came upon the battle, which was raging somewhere in the skies northwest of London, Ontario. To their excitement, Milburgia's shields appeared devastatingly effective. The Vettier cavalry had crashed into the swirling cloud of Skookum surrounding the dragon and was now slaughtering them by the tens of thousands. The air grew gritty as their dying bodies exploded into dust. Even the strongest arrows and spears bounced off of the bubbles as though they were made of rubber. Even the dragon's fire sloughed off their surface. It's working, Luke cried, catching hold of a wisp of hope. With the Skookums retreating, Luke saw his window of opportunity open just behind the main battle lines. The detective spurred Whirlwind to a position that gave him a clear view of the firedrake's sternum. Luke studied the pattern of plates in the dragon's chest, recalling the V-shaped intersection of scales that covered the harrower's heart from a diagram in Milburgia's massive magic book. Pinpointing the spot, he gripped Fermus France tightly and drew back his arm. He inhaled a long, deep breath, desperately wishing he'd done track and field in high school. However, knowing that the raven's feathers would aid his certainly substandard effort, Luke decided to take the shot. Suddenly, however, the blue glow of his bubble faded into nothingness. He looked around in terror as cerulean spheres popped all across the sky, leaving the Vatier vulnerable. The Skookums howled with delight as the shields evaporated, wasting no time in renewing their assaults with catastrophic consequences. In mere minutes, the whole battalion of Bigfoot soldiers and their owls were cut down in hails of arrows and spheres, their dead bodies tumbling to the earth in a grisly rain. The detective was so horrified he nearly missed Dragoch guffaw with gratification and unleash a torrent of flame directly towards him. Thunderer reacted, but not soon enough. When she whipped around, some of the inferno ignited the flight feathers on her left wing, causing her to lose lift and plummet in an uncontrolled corkscrew. To stop himself from being flung off the owl's back, Luke dropped the javelin and grabbed the saddle with all his strength, praying that the descent would end before the centripetal forces emptied his stomach and knocked him unconscious. When Thunderer finally careened into the dust, Luke had avoided the latter, but not the former. The owl attempted to land on her feet, but injured and disoriented, she instead crashed in a heap, breaking the detective's fall, but sending him tumbling off her back like an empty can kicked down the street. As Luke regained his bearings, he found himself lying flat on his back without his helmet. It took several seconds for the wind knocked out of him to re-enter his lungs. 
Once he had caught his breath, Luke flexed his fingers and wiggled his toes, finding everything sore but in working order. He felt for his sword, but it must have been torn off in the crash. He looked up. Directly before him stood Dr. Gerard Delvaux. The elderly crypto-antiquinarian brandished Fermo's France from within a perfectly intact shield sphere. Seeing Luke, the old man grinned with a fiendish sneer. Ha! Did you really think that I would let you, Freya's blundering boy toy, deliver the killing blow to the dragon? Ha! He began haughtily. I've worked my entire life to uncover and wield such power as this. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Luke coughed, sitting up. This is exactly what I mean, Delvo replied, irritated. Whomever fells Dragoch will be regarded as a living god on earth. Meanwhile, Milberger's book gives whoever holds it the power of a god. Do I need to make the math any plainer? <coughs> no, Luke sighed, coughing again. <coughs> but how did you? I tampered with the tooth powder. <laughs> Delvo interrupted smugly. I diluted it with table salt so your spheres would last just long enough to get you killed, or at least incapacitated. But what about Bromir? He would have stopped you. I slipped a sleeping potion into his beer, the great brute, the doctor replied matter-of-factly. I would have poisoned him, but I expect I will need his services when I am king. You snake! Freya howled. The detective turned to see the goddess hovering just over his head, her eyes braziers of blue flame. She pointed Lufraden's glimmering blade at the mystic. By Relanoma, she cried, shooting golden light from the tip of her sword. With a concussion like a battleship gun, the beam burst straight towards the doctor, striking his bubble with a blinding flash and a sonic boom, sending debris tumbling in a spherical shockwave. Luke watched helpless and in horror, as the beam bounced off of Delvo's translucent shield and ricocheted towards Freya, smashing into her like a train hitting a rag doll. She tumbled at least a hundred feet before crashing to the ground in a lifeless pile. Cackling wickedly, the doctor strode up to her, and reached down to uncinch her flying magic cloak and pulled it from her roughly, as though reclaiming an heirloom quilt from beneath a dying dog. As he did, the goddess groaned. <coughs> Foolish Freya, Delvo clucked dismissively, fastening the cloak around his shoulders. Vapid Vanadis, did you really think that I'd make my coup without considering your response? I mean, Freya, you have studied Milberga's hidden spells. Did you not read that these shields are completely impenetrable? Or did your temper get the best of you? Either way, you've made my job much easier. 
Now all I have is a dragon to destroy. <laughs> With a cruel laugh, he shot straight up into the air. Now that the professor was gone, Luke rushed to his fallen beloved. As he reached her, Whirlwind touched down nearby, with Brona on her back. I saw from above, Brona said, jumping off and running towards them. Freya was covered in a foul paste of mud and soot, her helmet missing and her breastplate crushed into her chest, choking her. Luke drew his dagger and cut the straps holding the plate in place. He gently lifted the armor and tossed it aside. Freya sighed with relief. Luke! She whispered through bloodied lips, her irises barely visible through swollen eyelids. Brona turned to the detective, her face grave. Luke, we must get Freya to shelter. Well, dudes and dudettes, that's tonight's story. Detective Luke Miller, At the End of Existence, Part 1, by D. Zane Davis. Tune in next time for the exciting conclusion of the Dragon Saga. It will be the last episode of Detective Luke Miller for now, don't worry. But D. Zane Davis is working on writing more of it. And if you'd like to read more stories from Luke Miller, there are a couple more up on Patreon available for you to read for just $1 a month. The author of tonight's story was D. Zane Davis. It was read, edited, recorded, and mixed and mastered by me, Michael Strand, lead content creator at Six Emperor Serpent. And it was published by T. Martin Krauss, editor-in-chief at Six Emperor Serpent Books. And finally, tonight's music is by Revolution Void. This song titled Time Flux. Check out their music on the Free Music Archive. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing and contributing on Patreon. Please like and share this episode. If you liked it, chances are your friends will like it too. Follow us at Six Semper Serpent on Instagram. You can follow me at Strand Art and Lit. And you can also search for Nathaniel Hicklin and Christina DZA Marie. They are also on Instagram. We'll see you next time on the Everlasting Stories podcast.